Welcome to Mind Tricks Radio, where we'll explore contemporary topics in psychology through interviewing creative and innovative thinkers in the field. I'm your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan. Thanks for tuning in. Today I'm going to talk about the concept of core irrational beliefs and how to identify and change your core rational beliefs. This concept of core rational beliefs I find to be very helpful in my psychology practice and I use it with patients quite frequently to try to better understand what's going on with them and how they're sort of functioning and operating at a core level. I talked about core rational beliefs briefly in a recent episode of Mind Tricks Radio that I recorded about the ABCs of cognitive therapy. This episode is a good foundation for understanding how cognitive therapy works, and I highly recommend going back and taking a listen to that if you have the chance. And also, before we get into this episode, I'd like to remind everybody, if you have a chance, please subscribe to Mind Tricks Radio so you can be notified when new episodes drop, and also please like and give a good review in whatever podcast you're listening to. It really helps get the word out there about Mind Tricks Radio, and I really appreciate the feedback. So let's talk about core rational beliefs. What is a core rational belief? I like to think of a core rational belief as a belief that's sort of really deeply entrenched in your thinking. It's at an unconscious level, so you don't really know that it's there on a day-to-day basis, but it sort of permeates all of your thinking every day and kind of every activity and situation that you're in. It's running in the background like a computer program that you're not aware of, and it, it affects the way that you experience the world around you. It's at its core because, as I mentioned, it's a core thought that you have. I like to think of it as sort of like a program, a computer program. Imagine that you have a a program that you're writing for all you coders out there in Silicon Valley or wherever you are. You have a core program, and if you build additional codes or additional programs that are based on that, if that core program is faulty in some way, you're going to get error codes everywhere you go until you fix that core program. Well, it's the same with core irrational beliefs. You have a belief that's at your core. It's faulty in some way. That's the irrational part. And it's affecting the way that you're experiencing everything in the world around you. Irrational. Well, why is it irrational? It's irrational because it's just not true. It's a thought that you have that's at your core that you've incorporated into your thinking at a very deep level and it's erroneous. It's not true. It's irrational. And so why would you want an irrational thought at your core affecting the way that you're experiencing the world and going about your daily life? You wouldn't want that. But unless you know it's there and you can identify it, it's going to be affecting you. So it's irrational because it's not true. And it's a belief, which means it's not fact. It's in your head. And the good news there is because it's a belief, it's something that you can change. It's it's not hardwired. It's not hardware. It's software. It can be changed. So that's a core irrational belief. So let's talk about a core belief, for example. A core belief might be something like, it's wrong to hurt people. Most people incorporate that into their thinking. It's running in the background. You don't walk around life saying to yourself, I'm not going to hurt somebody because it's wrong to hurt people. You just don't hurt people. At least you don't intentionally hurt people, and you try not to hurt people on an unconscious level. Say you're walking down an aisle, you try not to step on people's feet. 
you're not consciously telling yourself, I'm not going to step on these people's feet because it's wrong to hurt them. You just don't do it. That core belief, it's wrong to hurt people, is running in the background and it stops you from stepping on people's feet. It stops you from punching people in the face. If you are not happy with somebody or when you have to give somebody some bad news or talk to somebody, usually you're trying to soft pedal or find a a better way to say something that it's not going to hurt them as much as it might if you just came out bluntly and said it in a mean kind of way. I mean, unless you're some kind of a psychopath or you have no empathy or compassion, generally people are walking around with a core belief that it's wrong to hurt people. Along with all these other core beliefs, every kind of core belief that you can imagine that dictates and guides how you're going about your daily business that you're not thinking about on a conscious level. Well, just imagine that there were core irrational beliefs, beliefs that were in your head that were affecting the way that you're going about your daily business. I'm a terrible person. If you had a core rational belief that you were a terrible person, then the way you experience the world around you will be based in that. I'm a terrible person, so maybe I don't have a right to ask for something that I want or need. I'm a terrible person, so if something bad happens to me, maybe I deserve it. That's a core rational belief. It's irrational because it's not true, because most people are not terrible people. You know, unless you're maybe Hitler or somebody who most of the world might say this is a terrible person. Most people are not terrible people. But people have the core rational belief that they're a terrible person, and then that guides the way that they interact with the world around them. So that's the difference. A core belief is a belief that we have that guides us, and when it's irrational, it causes us problems. So I'm going to give some examples of some typical core rational beliefs. I usually look at core rational beliefs as stemming from core rational beliefs about the self, about others, and about the world around us. So examples of core rational beliefs about the self. I'm unlovable. I'm stupid. I'm a failure. I can't handle my emotions. I'm a loser. I'm a freak. I don't fit in. I'm worthless. I'm weak. I'm impotent, vulnerable. I'm selfish when I have my own needs. Can't do anything right. I'm responsible for the happiness and well-being of other people. These are examples of core rational beliefs about the self. Core rational beliefs about others. People can't be trusted. People will take advantage of you. People are spineless, two-faced hypocrites. People are incompetent. People are lazy. People are unethical and immoral. People will let you down. Examples of core rational beliefs of others. Now, core rational beliefs about the world. The universe is against me. Life is unfair. It's a cold, cruel world. It's every man or every woman for herself, for himself. God has it in for me. The world is a dangerous place. Everything is out of control and falling apart. Those are core rational beliefs about the world. Now, these are just ways that I'm labeling. You could come up with any verbiage you want to describe a core rational belief, and these aren't set in stone ones. There's lots and lots of other ones that you could come up with. But these are just sort of examples of typical ones that I see in my practice that once we start digging into it with my patients, we figure out that those are the types of core rational beliefs that are affecting them. So where do core rational beliefs come from? Well, there's a number of places. Usually they stem from childhood because childhood is where you're learning about the world. You're learning about how you relate to the world around you. 
through your family, your friends, through society, culture, through experiences you have. Most core rational beliefs are developed in childhood, especially early childhood. In order for a core rational belief to develop later, like an adulthood, usually there has to be some kind of serious traumatic event or experience. And I'll talk a little bit about that too more later. But mostly they're formed in childhood. The most significant and obvious place that core rational beliefs develop in childhood is through relationships with family, family of origin. And this is where we draw upon attachment theory quite a bit. I've talked about attachment uh, with guests on this show in Mind Tricks in several episodes, and I'm going to highlight those two in a moment, so you could go back and listen to them if you're interested. But attachment is very important for the way that a child learns how to relate to other people and experience themselves in relation to others and also internalizes messages about themselves. Those core relationships with parents and caregivers, whether it's grandparents or other people in the extended family, but usually especially with the parents is where it's important. That's where children develop and learn about the world around them and how they relate to it. So a child develops her attachment style based on the nature of her relationship with her parents. Hopefully, if a child develops healthy attachments, which we often call a secure attachment style, she's developing a core sense of security, safety, and trust in the world around her and the people who are taking care of her. She really believes that she can exist in the world and be able to count on people around her to take care of her and to encourage her, and that she can go out and explore and find ways of being independent and feel safe in being able to do those things and always have somebody there who's got their back. They feel like they can make mistakes, they can try new things, take risks, and even have and explore their emotions and their emotional state and feel safe doing those. So, when they have that kind of opportunity in childhood, children are able to develop secure attachments and healthy, core, stable beliefs about themselves and about their relationships with others and the world around them. So sometimes children can develop insecure attachment styles, and those are sometimes referred to as avoidant attachment styles or anxious attachment styles. And I'm not going to go into a lot of detail here about what those are because I have other episodes that you can go back and take a look at where my guests talk at great length about those and really provide a lot of information about them. But basically, with insecure attachment styles, the child is lacking in a degree of trust in the people around them, trust in themselves to have relationships with them, and trust in the world around them. To be safe. It has to do with safety and trust. So a child with an insecure attachment style may not believe that if they make a mistake or they try to do something independently or they have an emotion of their own that they're going to be okay because of that, that they're going to be accepted. The messages they might get is that you're wrong for having these feelings, you're wrong for doing this the way that you're doing it because I want you to do it differently, and that basically the acceptance and love is conditional. When a child gets that message, then their core belief about themselves is that there's something wrong with me, I'm not capable of doing things on my own, if I make a mistake, I'm a failure, I can't handle my emotions, I'm not allowed to have emotions. Those kinds of thoughts, core rational beliefs, can stem from insecure attachment styles. 
And this comes from the nature of the relationship with the parents. And don't forget, in childhood, children are not responsible for their relationships with their parents. Parents are responsible for helping create that relationship because children don't know any better until maybe they start getting older. But in the beginning, they're relying on their parents mirroring to them what an appropriate relationship is like, what to expect in terms of the responses that they get, and the feedback that they get about their behaviors and what's going on with them from their parents is how they internalize their own view of themselves. So if there's a lot of criticism, there's a lot of punitive nature, or the home environment is really chaotic and inconsistent and the child doesn't know what to expect, that's the core rational belief that they develop. I can't trust the world around me to be safe. At any moment, things might just blow up and it's not safe. Just when you think everything is going fine, everything falls apart. You can't trust things to be stable in your world. And the level of stability that's created within the family environment is vitally important for a child to develop either stable core beliefs or ultimately core rational beliefs if it's not a stable and secure attachment. So what are some common sticking points in child development that the child might receive messages from their parents or caregivers about that could affect the development of core rational beliefs? Starting early in childhood, especially in those first five years, children are learning all sorts of things about how the world works and how they fit in. And things that we take for granted, eating, waking up, cleaning up after ourselves, going to the bathroom. Adults do that without thinking too much about it. These are new things for children, and they're learning how to do them, and they're learning about them, and the messages that they receive about those things as they're developing and they're hitting developmental milestones are very crucial in how they're developing core beliefs about themselves. Hopefully, they're developing healthy ones. Sometimes they're developing core rational beliefs, and this is, has to do with the messages they get about them. So let's just start, you know, potty training. That's one of the first ones. Now, children are very good about, about going to the bathroom. They know how to do that. They do it happy and freely and don't really have too much of an issue with it. So one of the first things they learn is what is the right way and wrong way to go to the bathroom? And the feedback they get about that is from their parents. How do their parents relax, re- relate to their potty training? Are they disgusted when bodily waste and fluids go all over the place? Do they scold the child when they happens? Do they freak out when there's a an accident or whatnot? Are they calm or patient? Do they let the child sit in their waste for a long period of time? The way that the parents teach and relate to the child around the potty training sends powerful messages to the child. You know, if there's a lot of freaking out or if there's, you know, the parents are getting really frustrated, child could internalize the idea, I'm disgusting, because let's face it, in our society, we try to get rid of waste as quickly as we can. So if that's a message that a child receives, they could feel that way about themselves. I'm incompetent. I'm not good enough. I get scolded every time I go to the bathroom, and I don't do it right. So that's potty training. Eating, that's another one. Parents make a big deal about eating sometimes. You know, a child is happy just grabbing food and shoving it in their face and getting it all over their face and eating what they want, and they're not thinking very consciously about what they're eating, how they're eating, when they're eating. So they begin to learn. What do the parents have to say about their eating? Do they get really, really upset when food is 
dropped on the floor or smeared on the face, when the sweet things are getting pushed into the mouth a lot more than the spinach or the stuff that a lot of kids think are gross or yucky. So the messages they receive about these are very, very important. Safety. You know, parents are a very the important role that they play is making sure that their children are safe. They don't do things that are too dangerous for them and they're not going to get hurt. And children obviously are not thinking too, care, too much about what's dangerous and what's not. They learn about that. So how a parent relates to their child about safety issues. Do they freak out when the child does something that could be dangerous for them or could get them into trouble? Do they calmly discuss it? Do they let the children get hurt and then the child begins to develop fears or, you know, so, so the internal, the core rational beliefs that can develop from this is the world is a dangerous place. I'm unable to navigate the world on my out myself without hurting myself. I need to rely on others to take care of me because I can't do it myself. I can't be trusted to look after myself. So the way these messages are conveyed are really important. Obviously, there's lots of other examples of this. Children begin to socialize. What are the messages they're getting about socialization? I need to make friends. I don't have as many friends as somebody else. My parents are comparing me to somebody else and saying, look, Johnny, that child has all these friends. Fred has all of the friends, and you don't have any friends. You should go make some friends. Well, what if the child is introverted, has a different kind of temperament than Fred does? What if the child just enjoys playing by himself or herself more, but the parent is pushing the child and making the child's feeling badly about not doing what the parent wants in terms of socializing, or the parent is comparing the child to another child. Look, Johnny can build such a tall tower in, with blocks. Why don't you go build a tall tower with blocks? Or whatever. See, all of these messages that a child is receiving could be then internalized, like, I'm not good enough, I can't do things as well as other people, I'm not likable, because so-and-so has a lot more friends than I do, and I'm being told I should have more friends. So these are how they're internalized. Also, as a child re reaches adolescent, there's often a lot more emphasis placed on future, on success, achievement, going to college, getting a job, making money, fitting in, having friends. There's messages that children can, re can get as adolescents. They've probably been getting these kinds of messages all along if, they, if they're having them in adolescence as well, but they can lead to similar core rational beliefs. I'm, I'm not good enough. I'm, you know, if they're looking at their body type or something about their physical appearance and comparing themselves to other people and their parents are comparing them to other people, especially when it comes to things like weight or attractiveness or attributes that, you know, maybe for that particular child, it's, it's not as easy to attain the same kind of qualities as somebody else because they're not just the same people. And again, on the introversion, extroversion factor, maybe an adolescent is a bit more of a an introverted person. And so it's not as easy or comfortable for them to have large groups of friends and be so social. And when they get compared, they're receiving messages often i'm not good enough i'm not likable these are the examples of core rational beliefs that can stem from that obviously also puberty can be a tough time for teenagers because there's a lot of changes that are going on inside of their bodies and they're becoming more aware of that 
And that can be sort of embarrassing and uncomfortable and awkward for them. And as they're struggling with that, the way in which they receive messages from their family about the changes, maybe they're ignored completely. And so they're feeling awkward and the message they're getting when they're not talking about this with their parents is, I'm disgusting. And people don't want to talk with me because of that. Or there's something seriously wrong with me. They're just uncomfortable with how they're feeling. And rather than getting a sort of a sympathetic conversation about that, they're still feeling like they're being criticized because they have acne or their body is changing and they haven't quite figured out how to you know, use deodorant or whatever it is. I, so the messages they get, those of disgust or uh, disapproval, can sink in and create core rational beliefs. You know, I, I want to say that, you know, I, I know it sounds like I'm putting a lot of blame on parents here for screwing up their kids and causing them to have ira- core rational beliefs. I don't mean to be doing that. Most of the time, parents are just doing the best they can to try to raise children and try to help them out. Oftentimes, for example, parents think, my child needs to know how to socialize and how to have friends. If he or she doesn't learn how to do that, he or she's going to be lonely, not going to be liked. I don't want my child to feel ostracized and feel left out and feel not liked. So I want to encourage him or her to learn how to have friends. And that includes learning how to fit in. Or I don't want my child pooping all over the place because it is inconvenient for me to clean it up. And also, if he or she doesn't learn how to get this under control, it's there can be an accident in school and it's going to be really embarrassing for him or her. Or any other things. If my child doesn't learn how to eat you know, properly with utensils and, and learn how to eat spinach and vegetables and things like that, then he or she's going to grow up and just, you know, lay on the couch and smash Big Macs and fast food in his or her mouth and and make a mess and not be healthy. And so these are the kinds of things that parents think about and they want to set their child on the right course. And some of that's okay because part of the role of a parent is to be a guide and to help a child learn how to develop and learn how to understand how society works and to be socialized properly. But it's a fine line because the child needs to be able to receive those messages in a way that he or she doesn't internalize it as there's something seriously wrong with me, the world is just this impossible place to fit into. So it's tough. It's not easy. And I highly recommend that if you're a parent or you're thinking about parenting, you be very conscious about how you're delivering these messages and realize that there's a a fine line between guiding and nurturing and nudging and putting on this expectation that the child's going to internalize there's something wrong with him or her. Life is just impossible to fit into. Now, sometimes in my practice, we have conversations about family of origin, and it's really important for the person to understand their psychodynamics and what's going on with them and how they're feeling, and then obviously to try to identify the core rational beliefs. And sometimes I get a bit of defensiveness. People say like, you know, I don't want to blame my parents. My parents are great parents. You know, maybe they made some mistakes, but they did the best they could. And even right now, as I'm an adult, I have a great relationship with them. And so I don't want to think about them in this negative way. And I certainly don't want to blame them. I don't want to put the responsibility for the problems I'm having on my parents. So that happens a lot. 
And what I try to tell my patients when that conversation comes up is our purpose isn't to blame parents. You know, nobody's perfect. People make mistakes. And sometimes you try to do things for the right reason and you get a good outcome and a bad outcome. Maybe a child is really well prepared to be able to manage their own independently. And at the same time, they develop a core rational belief that you can't count on anybody else. I'm just giving that as one possible example. So even with the best intentions and the best efforts, parents do the best they can. And sometimes there is an outcome where a child can develop a core rational belief, along with all the other good things. So we're just looking at cause and effect here so that the person can understand my parents raised me well, a lot of great things happened for me, I love my parents and I have a good relationship with them, and there were some consequences for some aspects of the parenting that led me to develop these core rational beliefs the way that they did, and that's what I need to focus on trying to undo. Right? It's a cause and effect. It's not about blame. It's about understanding the cause and effect so that we can work on it. We can understand why we have a core rational belief, and we can try to change it. That's very, very important. I don't mean to blame parents. Now, certainly there are examples of just absolutely hellish childhoods. And so parents who are abusive, neglectful, there's all sorts of just complete turmoil in the house. It could be incidents of physical abuse, sexual abuse, extreme neglect, just massive criticism and put-downs situations where there's complete instability in the household, maybe there's alcohol and drugs there, well, those are really significant breeding grounds for core irrational beliefs. And oftentimes, when patients have those kinds of backgrounds, they don't have any problem blaming their parents or their family of origin. And again, like my main purpose is for people to understand cause and effect, that things that happened in your childhood whether they're traumatic or not, create the core rational beliefs that when you can recognize that you have them, you can work on changing them. If you're interested in this concept of attachment and how relationships with primary caregivers and parents leads to personality development, there I have had a few really interesting episodes you might want to check out. In particular, episode 25 of Mind Tricks Radio, Adult Personality and Childhood Relationships, with Dr. Hal Shorey. He does a really nice job talking about attachments and attachment theory and how people develop adult personalities based on that. Episode 8 with Dr. Cindy Zane, that was about love, attachment, and emotionally focused therapy, or EFT. EFT is a method of therapy that is really useful and really helpful, especially for couples in relationships. And it's a couples therapy that's based on attachment theory, which is really interesting. A more recent episode, episode number 43, Bouncing Back from Rejection with Dr. Leslie Becker Phelps. She does a really nice job talking about how people respond to rejection and how that is very closely linked to uh, attachment styles in childhood and how they experience their relationships as children. So I'd highly recommend going and checking out those episodes if you want to understand a little bit more about that. So family of origin isn't the only place where children can internalize core rational beliefs and where they get their messages. Another one is just through the media. We all know that the media presents very powerful messages that 
children can be exposed to and internalize their reactions to them in ways that could be unhealthy for them. And so the most obvious example is, you know, you're, you're a child and you're watching television shows and maybe you're watching television shows with other children on them. And let's just say these children are really happy and they're all playing together and doing, they're doing fun and exciting things, always laughing. And, and let's say that the child watching it is, you know, let's get back to the introversion, is sort of a quiet, shy, introverted kid. And the message that they're receiving when watching that is, everybody else is having so much fun playing together. I don't feel so comfortable in that kind of environment. What's wrong with me? I'm a freak. I'm unable to maintain exciting, happy relationships. Maybe the child's temperament is a little bit more cooler and you know, it's more serious. And so, you know, how often do we see cool, calm, serious children in children's TV? It's usually exuberant children having a lot of fun and laughing and smiling. So those comparisons are very easy for our children to internalize. Like, hey, these people don't look like me. There must be something wrong with me. Obviously, other examples from the media, like clear ones, are, hey, everybody on this particular TV show or these people look a particular way. They are dressed really immaculately. Maybe they're in a particular ethnic or racial cultural group that are different than I am. Maybe there's something wrong with me if I don't look like them. This has obviously been a problem with media in the past with a lack of diversity of faces and different kinds of people in the media. And so if you're not represented there, as a racial, ethnic, cultural group, you could, as a child, internalize the idea that I, maybe I don't fit in. The in-group is not me. I'm not part of the in-group. I'm an outcast. So that's examples of that. The media is very, very powerful. And also social media. Let's not forget social media. It's a relatively new phenomenon, the social media platforms. And the thing about social media is that children are really plugged in these days. A lot of children are. And it's very easy to make comparisons. Because what do people do with social media? Well, they present the version of themselves. They project out to the world that they want to. And if you're the child who's looking at that and what you're seeing other children projecting out is different from how you feel, different from how you're experiencing the world. And maybe the child is showing all sorts of fabulous photos of himself or herself on vacation, hanging out with friends, feeding the lions and the giraffes in Africa, wherever it is. And the child looking at it says, hey, that's not my life. How come my life isn't as interesting? How come I don't have so many friends in my social media? A lot of comparing goes on, and it's easy for a person then to start developing core rational beliefs. I'm unlovable. I'm unlikable. The rest of the world is having fun, and I'm missing out. There must be something wrong with me. My family is a reject because we're not doing all of those kinds of things. There must be something wrong with us. So those are, you know, social media is a very powerful way that children can get messages and compare themselves to other people. Peer groups also. I want to mention peer groups. So the influence of peers becomes more and more important, especially as a child gets older. And the, the desire to fit in is really important for a lot of children, to fit in and not feel like you don't belong and you're not an outcast. And so there's peer pressure, obviously. Peers are doing things and children want to feel like, hey, if I'm going to be part of this group, I need to do this too. Well, what happens if the peer group rejects them? What happens if there's disapproval? What if there's popularity contest going on within the peer groups and a person feels like I'm not the popular one, I'm not invited to things, 
my friends are making fun of me because of something about the way that I'm dressing, the car that I drive, maybe my hair looks different. There's something about me that is not desirable compared to my peers. So this is another powerful way that people can internalize core rational beliefs about themselves. I'm not good enough. I don't stack up. Let's take another example. Let's just imagine that there's a, a child who is, you know, we'll talk about like at the adolescent level, who has really, really smart friends. They're just, they have a brilliant friend group. And let's say this child's a very smart person too, but maybe they're not book smart in the same way as some of their friends are. So the friends are all getting A's and they're talking about going to Ivy League schools and all of these things that are just really exceptional. And then the child's like, well, I don't think I can get into an Ivy League school. My grades aren't quite good enough. My SAT scores are not quite good enough. I'm, I just don't get school the way that they do. But otherwise, let's say this child's a very intelligent person who is going to go to college and probably will have a very successful life in whatever way he or she decides to have a successful life. But that person is comparing themselves to their friends and in that peer group are all going to Ivy League schools. Well, that person might develop a core rational belief. I'm stupid. I'm subpar. I'm not good enough. I'm not like other people. I can't make it. Well, obviously, in relation to that particular peer group, that's a tough group to compare yourself to. And so obviously that's not true. The core rational belief, it's irrational. That person is not a loser, not stupid, not going to fail in life, but it might feel that way to that person. That's the belief that he or she might internalize because the comparison is to this particular group that they're part of. I want to say a little bit about bullying as well. Bullying is really, really horrible. I know that like there's anti-bullying campaigns that are going on, and it's good that they are, but I just want to mention how harmful it is. It is a, also a way that instills core rational beliefs. When a child is bullied, they're getting a message from the bully that there's something wrong with them. Now, bullies, we could get into the psychology of bullies another time. That's not important right now. But bullies usually pick on a child for some reason, something about the way they look. Maybe they're the new person in class, in school. Maybe that person sticks out in a particular way. They're shy. They're a little heavier set. Their hair is different. They wear glasses. Bullies usually find something to pick on. And how is that experienced by the child? Well, I'm a freak. There's something wrong with me. I don't fit in. Now, usually the, the bullies pick on something that really isn't anything remarkable. Glasses. Well, a lot of people wear glasses. But if somebody is picked on incessantly for wearing glasses, that person might develop the core rational belief, I'm a freak. I look weird. I am weird. Even though it's not true. The reason why this is so important is in childhood, this is when these core rational beliefs are mostly formed. And we don't want that to happen. So the interaction with bullies can be very, very toxic. Now, you might hear people say like, well, you know, a child needs to learn how to deal with bullies because there's going to be bullies all throughout his life. And when he becomes an adult, he's going to need to know how to deal with bullies. So you've got to develop a thick skin in childhood because there's always going to be bullies. Well, yes, 
There is always going to be bullies, and there are adult bullies. But the problem is, if the bullying takes place in childhood, that's where the core rational beliefs form. It's better that there isn't bullying in childhood, and the person develops a very good, solid, stable core belief about themselves as competent, as fitting in, as being worthwhile and worthy as a person without having to prove that. So that when adulthood happens and that person meets an adult bully, that person already has a stable core belief about themselves, and they're not going to give in to the bullying. They're not going to believe it. If the person developed core rational beliefs as a child and is bullied as an adult, they're more likely to give in to the adult bully and to be affected by the adult bully, rather than just say, oh, this adult bully, what the hell's his problem? He's an asshole. It's about him. It's not about me. So that's why we really need to take bullying seriously. I also want to mention that there are other aspects about socialization for children that can lead to the development of core rational beliefs that are very important. One of them has to do with gender expectations. And I'm thinking back to an episode that I recorded, episode 31, Men's Fear of Women, with Dr. Avram Weiss, where he talked about his book, hidden in plain sight, how men's fear of women shape their intimate relationships. And he talks quite a bit about how boy, the psyche of boys and how that develops, and especially around gender expectations for boys. Boys often receive very specific socialization about what it means to be a boy and what's appropriate and what's not appropriate. Oftentimes that involves the experience of feelings and expression of feelings. And boys are oftentimes punished or discouraged from having feelings and displaying feelings that are vulnerable ones. Those are considered to be girls' feelings, which of course isn't true because boys and girls have all of the feelings there are, but boys are often socialized to believe that those are wrong. And so if a boy is having a feeling, displays the feeling, is teased or discouraged from having that feeling, he can internalize the core rational belief, I'm a sissy, I'm not a man, I'm weak, I'm vulnerable. There's something wrong with me. And this is very an unfortunate thing about the socialization of boys, that they get this message. Because, of course, when they grow up, it makes it more difficult for them to, to relate to intimate partners when they're adults. Because, of course, connecting on an emotional level is very important. And this is a lot of what Avram Weiss talks about in his podcast. But it's also an example of how socialization in our culture can lead to core rational beliefs. And similarly, with other kinds of social expectations around culture, social economic status, ethnicity, anything where there are expectations about how somebody should behave, then it can lead them to develop core rational beliefs if the way they feel on the inside or how they're experiencing the world differs from that in some way. The last thing I want to say about the development of core rational beliefs is what I talked about briefly before about trauma. Well, obviously, traumatic experiences in childhood and also in adulthood can lead to core rational beliefs. These are often about safety, about the world. The world is an unsafe place. People can't be trusted. Obviously, when there is sexual abuse or physical abuse, especially for children, then that really shatters the concept of being able to trust because children naturally trust their parents, they trust people around them. And not that it's necessarily the parents that are perpetrating sexual abuse or physical abuse, but if that happens from other adults, the idea of that 
adults can be trusted and people around me can be trusted is can be shattered so core rational belief people can't be trusted the world is a dangerous place and also i want to be clear obviously some people can't be trusted and there are things about the world that can be dangerous and unsafe we know that we're not trying to sugarcoat things here but when the core rational belief is developed then that's the way the child approaches everything nobody can be trusted everything about the world is dangerous we don't want to have those core rational beliefs we want to grow up as adults feeling like hey the world is a pretty great place hey people in general are are awesome but we need to learn in the appropriate ways as we grow up how to exercise healthy caution with people and with things in the world we don't want that to be the base that we're coming from the core rational belief that you can't trust anybody nothing is safe that's not good for people that keeps people from being able to go out into the world with a sense of confidence bill the feeling like i can i can make friendships and have a relationship when you have those core rational beliefs it inhibits a person from doing those things naturally so now let's take a look at some case study examples about core rational beliefs. Now these are all fictional, but they represent very typical kinds of situations I see from patients that I've been working with over the many years that I've been a clinician, and these core rational beliefs stemming from typical types of life situations I see again and again. This first one is sort of an example of teasing and bullying and the detrimental effect that that can have on a person's development of core rational beliefs. The first time I met Jeannie, a 40-year-old woman, she exclaimed, I feel like a 16-year-old. I spend all day staring at myself in the mirror. Jeannie obsessed about her body image. She couldn't look in a mirror without carefully examining herself and staring at her physical imperfections the way she saw it. She regularly put herself down with unflattering ways of describing her physical appearance, including using words such as, I'm disgusting, hideous, and deformed. Once she referred to herself as the hunched nose of Notre Dame. Her fiancé, who clearly didn't agree with Jeannie's self-assessment, complained about the time and energy she spent bashing herself, looking at herself, and criticizing herself. While there were no parts of her body that were safe from her critical assault, she was particularly harsh on herself about her bone structure. She saw herself as bony and lanky. She focused on several parts of her body where her bones stuck out in her perception. She thought her ankles and elbows looked deformed, that her breastbone stuck out like a two-by-four. Further, she thought her nose protruded like a proboscis monkey. Go Google proboscis monkey if you want to know what that looks like. It's a pretty harsh way of perceiving oneself. Jeannie had consulted several plastic surgeons who told her it would be surgically risky to reshape many of the bones in her body that she was unhappy about. In actuality, Jeannie was an attractive woman. Her fiancé frequently said he thought she was beautiful, and her friends thought she was crazy for obsessing about her boniness. When asked if she would ever be satisfied with her appearance, if there was a way of altering her protruding bones, she hesitantly admitted that she'd probably find something else on her body to pick on. Jeannie recalled how, as a child, she was lanky and awkward. That's how she felt. She was one of the first girls in her school to go through puberty, and by sixth grade, she was de developing a young woman's body. Even though she was developing at a normal rate, she looked different than the other girls, and 
was teased by that. The boys called her Dolly Parton. And if you're as old as I am, you remember who Dolly Parton was. And she was often focused on for that part of her body, her bust. And girls were less kind. They called her Frankenstein because of her awkwardness. These names, as well as others, stuck with her throughout high school as her peers never seemed to forget those nicknames and enjoyed giving her that when she was younger and continued that through high school. Those were the nicknames that stuck. As an adult, she continued to see her as freakishly defective, even though her physical features were average and normal compared to anybody else as an adult. So the core rational belief that she would have internalized would be something like, I'm a freak and I'm a misfit and I'm defective. And that is the core rational belief that would run through everything the way that she saw herself. So individuals like this who develop extremely negative and irrational views about their appearance may seek to hide their perceived imperfections at all costs. They shy away from social activities where attention might be drawn to their bodies. These might include things like swimming and dances and parties. And they might completely avoid the most threatening types of activities like dating, being a relationship, and sexual intimacy. Feeling completely naked and exposed and vulnerable to close-up scrutiny by a potential partner is the worst possible threat for somebody like that. Miles was a 24-year-old police cadet who came to see me after he failed to pass his required oral exam for the third time. He described how he froze during his exams and his mind went blank as the senior officers hounded him for responses. Miles grew up in a chaotic household. His father suffered from schizophrenia and alcohol abuse and often disappeared for months at a time, roaming the streets homeless. Father would return periodically for a few weeks to months, often behaving in a bizarre and disruptive manner in the house. Miles once watched his father chop up furniture in the living room with a machete, shouting that he was Alibaba and the 40 Thieves. Miles' parents fought constantly while his father was home. During his father's absence, Miles' mother was depressed and withdrawn, rarely interacted with Miles. Miles felt embarrassed to invite friends to the house because of his strange family, and as a result, he didn't have many friends. Miles became depressed and anxious as a boy. He was overweight, and he frequently stuttered when under pressure. Even worse, he was sometimes incontinent, and at one point in elementary school, he was required to wear a diaper. Boys in his class called him Diaper Baby. His feelings of shame and humiliation were pervasive throughout much of his childhood. As an adult, Miles continued to be emotionally sensitive and anxious. His fellow cadets and his supervisors had seen him become visibly distraught and tearful on more than one occasion. When these events occurred, Miles felt the same kind of shame and humiliation as when he wet his pants as a child and thoughts of being a diaper baby flashed through his head. Although nobody said anything negatively about Miles, he imagined others saw him as a wimp and that he wasn't a, quote, real man because he displayed his emotions. The fact that he failed his oral exam three times was an indication to him that he couldn't handle pressure like a real man. So here we have core rational beliefs about being weak, about being helpless, vulnerable, being less than a man. And you can see how witnessing his parents and his chaotic household and having a hard time managing that would lead to the development of these uh, core irrational beliefs. Michelle was born in rural China. She was abandoned by her parents in a crowded market when she was one year old. 
She was raised in an orphanage and until, until three years old and then was adopted by a white American family from an affluent suburb in Cincinnati. Throughout her childhood, Michelle was the only Asian child in her school. Other children teased her and ignored her, and Michelle felt alienated and unwanted. She especially dreaded lunchtime because she always ate alone. To make matters worse, her older sister, who was the biological child of her adopted parents, was very popular. She was the captain of the girls' soccer team at a very competitive high school. The parents lavished attention on Michelle's sister, who was frequently featured in the local newspapers. Not surprisingly, Michelle felt very badly about herself. First, she was abandoned as a child, and then she was adopted into a family in a neighborhood where she was teased, ignored, compared to her sister, who received all the praise, glory, and attention. Michelle rebelled when she reached adolescence. She found friends who drank and smoked pot. Her parents were quick to blame Michelle for her behavioral problems and expressed their extreme disappointment and disapproval. They didn't seem to understand why Michelle was so unhappy. Her parents' reaction to her only confirmed to Michelle that there must be something seriously wrong with her and that she was unwanted burden to her parents. So there we have, I'm a mistake, I'm unwanted, I'm unlovable, I'm a burden, there's something fundamentally wrong with me. Any of those core rational beliefs could work in that case example. Let's try another example here. This one is about the core rational belief about feeling like one has a responsible for the emotional well-being of other people. Cheryl was a self-proclaimed magnet for the needy. She had a finely tuned skill of befriending birds with broken wings. Recently, Cheryl met an elderly man named Mel while sitting on a park bench. She noticed he appeared sad and began talking with him. Before she knew it, she had sat with him for over two hours listening to him complain. Cheryl gave Mel her phone number in case he ever wanted to talk. The next day, he called, complaining that nobody cared about him, even his own family, who lived in another state. Cheryl asked Mel if he had any food, and he replied that he hadn't eaten for two days. She made him some stew and brought it to his apartment. She was shocked to find his apartment was a complete disaster. It clearly hadn't been cleaned for months. She then bought some cleaning supplies and cleaned the entire apartment. If this had been the extent of Cheryl's involvement, it may have been an appropriately compassionate and caring act. However, the phone calls continue, and Cheryl quickly found herself becoming Mel's de facto caretaker and social worker. When she attempted to set limits, like to tell him that she was busy, he sometimes threw a tantrum and even would threaten to kill himself. The weight of the responsibility became unbearable as Cheryl neglected her own needs and responsibilities in order to take care of Mel. One day... Mel showed up on her doorstep, stating that he had been evicted and had nowhere to go. Cheryl allowed Mel to sleep on her sofa, and thus began a long and frustrating caretaking relationship with Mel. Now that he was in her personal space, it was much more difficult to set limits with him, and she felt guilty about thinking about kicking him out to the streets. Ironically, the local homeless housing project wouldn't provide him housing. As long as he was staying at Cheryl's house, he technically wasn't homeless. Cheryl's relationship with Mel was typical for her. Unfortunately, every time a new person took advantage of her, it reinforced her belief that others couldn't be trusted. Because things like this happened again and again, her boundaries were violated, and eventually she would put up her boundaries and feel really upset with other people. 
But the core belief here is I'm responsibility for the happiness and well-being of others. Paula was a 23-year-old woman who prided herself on how responsible and independent she was. She went to college and shared a house with a group of female classmates. She complained her housemates were immature little girls because they did not look after themselves in the house. They left their dirty clothes on the floor, neglected house chores, and frequently left the house in a state of messiness and disarray. Basically, typical college students. Nevertheless, Paula considered her housemates to be highly irresponsible, and she ended up doing most of the house chores herself. Paula scolded her housemates for their lackadaisical and sloppy approach to the house, warning them that if they would never succeed in the world if they couldn't take care of their own house. Paula admitted that sometimes she felt as though she wanted to strangle her housemates. She kept a journal to document everything she did for them, such as washing their dirty dishes, doing laundry, vacuuming, and cleaning. She watched her housemates carefully and documented whenever they neglected their responsibilities. Paula even set up tests for her housemates to see if they would come to assistance if necessary. Once she purposely cut her hand and then started washing everybody's dishes, exclaiming that her hand was bleeding from doing so many chores. Her roommates voiced concern about her hands but didn't offer to get up and help with the dishes. So as a child growing up in Romania, Paula was placed in a position of responsibility in her household. Her father died when she was four and her mother had a serious mental illness preventing her from being able to adequately take care of the house. Along with taking care of much of the household responsibilities, she also helped care for her younger brother and she went to school. Paula had a constant fear that if the government knew about her living situation, her mother would be taken away and placed in an insane asylum, which was her words. Consequently, she did everything she could to manage the household affairs on her own. Meanwhile, she felt jealous, angry, and resentful toward other girls at her age who didn't have to worry about the responsibility in the same way she did. Paula came to understand that her concern over being responsible and running a tight ship at home stemmed from her fears as a child of losing her mother. And so she developed this core rational belief that people can be lazy and irresponsible, and also everything can be taken away at a moment's notice. And so that developed into the way that she oriented herself toward the world and ultimately her feelings about her roommates. Angela is a 24-year-old woman who moved to Hawaii from Las Vegas to get away from the life, which is the way that she and her friends refer to the life of being a call girl. She enrolled in the university and planned to obtain a degree in psychology. In her prior life in Las Vegas, she primarily associated with people who had serious problems, Most of the men she encountered, such as pimps, johns, or people involved in the sex industry were abusive, narcissistic, and chauvinistic. The women were emotionally unstable, usually involved in some kind of major drama in their lives. They were competitive, backstabbing, and were often involved in serious substance abuse. Angela was determined to start a new life, including making new friends and hopefully starting a healthy relationship with a man she could trust. Angela realized that there was a great deal of personal information about herself that she needed to be cautious about sharing with others. For example, how would she respond if somebody asked her why she would move from Las Vegas or what kind of work she did in the past? Angela decided she would respond to most personal questions by saying, that's a bit personal. 
Unfortunately, her strategy seemed to backfire. For example, she described how she met a nice man who was a graduate student at a college volleyball game. After chatting about non-personal topics such as school and living in Hawaii, the man asked Angela questions about herself. According to her plan, she responded to most of his questions by saying, It's personal. These include questions like, where are you from? Do you have any brothers or sisters? Do you have a boyfriend? Angela said she felt crushed when he gave her a look as if to say, what the hell is wrong with you? And then walked away. So her core rational belief, people can't be trusted, clearly developed from her life situation and past experiences where perhaps in those situations, people really couldn't be trusted. But she developed a core rational belief. And because of that, the dynamics of her relating to people in the present didn't go so well for her. People need to feel like you're open and trusting in order to want to invest some energy into you. And so that was what Angela found out. I hope some of these examples help illustrate what we're talking about with these core rational beliefs. It's just a small handful and a slice of what they look like. But obviously, every Buddy's story is unique and a person's core rational beliefs can affect the way that they perceive themselves, their relationships to others in the world around them in many, many different kinds of ways. Hopefully this episode has been helpful for you and I appreciate listening and tuning in. Thank you for listening to Mind Tricks Radio. I hope you have enjoyed the program. For more information about Mind Tricks, you can go to my website, www.waikikihealth.com. Be sure to subscribe to Mind Tricks on your preferred podcasting host to be notified of new episodes of Mind Tricks. Please take some time to give Mind Tricks a good rating and review wherever you are listening. It really helps get the word out to new listeners. And please like and share Mind Tricks posts on Twitter and Facebook by following your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan.